Um, but I, like, and I don't think people understand sort of how granular these choices are. I mean, Adam mentioned before, uh, like that you could separate out like moms and how like into a bunch of groups based on how old the kids are or how old Facebook thinks the kids are. But they also had as like demographic selections, corporate moms, stay at home moms, moms of grade school kids, fit moms, green moms, big city moms, trendy moms, soccer moms, parents of preschoolers. Like, and so it's just like, there's this like list of uh, of all sorts of moms, which is like, <laughs> you know, it's like a. I, I have a similar like list. Hub categories. <laughs> I, I maintain a similar list, but it's not for anything that violates the right. Housing Act. Hot moms in your area. <laughs> Everybody, welcome to episode 12 of Mike Dicta, America's best named legal podcast. I'm your host, Charles Starr, as always, joined by uh, a banner panel. Uh, back again uh, from North Carolina. Everybody say hello to Mark. Hey. <laughs> Mark is full of enthusiasm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> checking in uh, from D.C. We're going to go up the uh, eastern seaboard here. Everyone say hi to Adam. Hey, folks. Uh, making her, her second straight appearance on the podcast with me uh, from Texas. Everyone say hello to Rhiannon. Hey there. And in his first uh, time joining me, uh, if not his first time being introduced to you uh, from here in New York with me, everyone say hi to Ames. Hey, good to be here. Yeah, I hope everyone at home is actually saying hi to you, all of you. Um, the I apologize uh, for the people who have been waiting uh, for episode twelve. Uh, Twitter is starting to feel a bit uh, like um, we're like George R. R. Martin or something. Uh, and while <laughs> while we appreciate the enthusiasm, uh, we're here uh, to give you. A couple of cases. The first one we're going to start out with uh, is something I think very close uh, specifically to the practices of uh, Mark and Rhiannon, which is uh, funding uh, for public defenders. And this is a case out of uh, Galveston in the Southern District of Texas, where Andrew Willey, a uh, public, I guess, He's kind of a public defender. He's also a court-appointed attorney. But in any event, he does indigent defense, and he is suing Jack Ewing, a judge in the Galveston County Court, in his official capacity, basically for blacklisting him for being too good a lawyer. Uh, like, I mean, the, the sum and substance of his complaint is that Ewing would continually refuse to pay the full amount that he was budgeting and then started uh, shelving him and refusing to assign him cases at all 
because Ewing felt like he was working too hard on what should be uh, in and out, like, you know, assembly line plea deals. Uh, and it's sort of a sort of a novel case and pretty great one. Uh, Mark, Rhiannon, how does this his treatment kind of fit with your own experience? Yeah, I think um, this is really actually it. Maybe to maybe to outsiders, this seems um, um, really novel, um, and maybe bringing the case certainly is. But this is a really a common kind of obstacle um, in Texas, and I imagine across the South in state jurisdictions that don't have a public defender system. So um, yeah, we we call Willie. He's he's basically the closest thing um, you know a lot of Texas counties have to a public defender, um, but he really isn't a public defender because um, Texas and a lot of state jurisdictions don't have a state-funded public defender system. It's up to counties to figure out how to ensure poor people are getting constitutionally mandated effective representation of counsel. So um, this means that a lot of counties uh, in Texas are are operating with the system where where uh, judges are appointing lawyers from the bench. Um, and what this results in a lot of the time, um, even in urban jurisdictions, um, is is a system where judges are appointing their buddy, the guy that they go have beers with on Friday. Um, um, and, and really what, what hurts defendants a lot is, um, they're appointing the person who will move their docket, who will clear their docket quickly, who's going to take the first, uh, you know, plea offer from the prosecutor, force a client to take it. Who's not going to request an investigator. Who's not going to file motions. And, and you often see, uh, judges, retaliating saying on the record mm. to lawyers who are doing anything differently that that this is the this is a problem and you're not going to you're not going to keep getting cases if you if you keep it up I, I i think that's right i mean i think what you know the the system that's going on in galveston is like Rhiannon said is is common i think really across the country at least you know some jurisdictions they'll have even if they have a public defender's office they will have this system for cases where there's a conflict of interest or things like that, or just cases that the public defender's office can't handle. And then in some jurisdictions, this is the only system. And, you know, it's just some lawyers in the community get on appointment on an appointment list from the County. And then the judge appoints lawyers from that list. And I think it's pretty common for the expectation to be that you do the absolute bare minimum amount of work. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, your job is to not is, is seen as not really to defend the person you're appointed to represent, but to but to process a case, basically listen mm -hmm. to what the state, what the prosecutor is alleging happens, see if the prosecutor will make a deal, you know, take whatever that deal is. And, you know, in 99 percent of cases, get your client to take that deal without doing any independent investigation to the case whatsoever. And that certainly seems to be what was happening in Galveston. Right. And I mean, that, that really is one of the things that he focuses on is that he gets like, there were just cases that he ended up with where he found that there were flaws either in the, like how the case was presented or there seemed to be things that were factually off or inconsistent. You know, I, there was one case where I guess he felt like uh, the arresting officer had given conflicting testimony at multiple stages of the case before it got to him. And so that to him gave 
rise to the need to get an investigator. There was another case where he thought the prosecutor was coming down too hard on their plea deal. And so he wrote an extensive memorandum explaining why he thought the prosecutor was overcharging. And in one case, the investigator proved what he needed to prove to get a better plea deal. In the other case, the memorandum convinced the district attorney to lower the charges or to make a better plea offer. And so in both cases, his representation was effective. And both times when he submitted bills, either for paying the investigator or for his own legal work, the judge just wouldn't pay the full amount he billed and just sort of like has the discretion to lower it. And every time seemed to be knocking it down and then essentially told him you're working too hard on your cases. You're putting in too many hours on these cases that should be churned through and then took him off of the appointments list. Which was which I mean, it what's funny is that the county seems to have a system which is designed to be judge proof, hmm. but it gives the judges the right to alter it, right? Like they have a next one up kind of system where the judge is just supposed to cycle through the attorneys on the list, but somehow this guy didn't get called for two years. Yeah, first for, for statistical context, tough to say. Um, around 97% of criminal cases are resolved by plea bargain, uh, and the rate might be 99% in the federal system, or it's at least above 97 the last time I checked. Um, so there's, you, you'll often hear prosecutors say, you know, if every case went to trial, and full disclosure, I, I was a prosecutor, uh, if every case went to trial, uh, the system would, gl- would grind to a halt. And of course, the answer, the correct answer by the defense attorney is not my problem. Uh, and it, it, <laughs> it's not exactly. not my issue. And and what Willie is doing is he's he's essentially saying he's forcing the question. He's saying these are cases you thought you could you could screw, you could push through a fast plea, and it could be one of those ninety seven. But I'm going to make you do the work, and that's the way the system's supposed to work. Um, but the adversary system is not really as clean as you might think. Yeah, Ames, that's that's an argument that's explicitly been made by uh, Michelle Alexander, who has actually argued that um, like defense attorneys should take cases to trial to grind the system to a halt. Hmm. Um, but, you know, even as. Yes. Well, sort of. It's more like a right, uh, Michelle defenses. Alexander. Uh, she's the, that's uh, the new Jim Crow author. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but looking at the the numbers in the complaint, um, you know, mm-hmm. as somebody who doesn't who time keeps but doesn't bill, um, the numbers didn't at all seem outrageous. I mean, the the plaintiff, is, he, he spent three hours on a couple plea deals um, that then, like, the, those were rejected by the judge. Um, and, I mean, I, for me at least, you know, if I spend three hours on a case that's, you know, meeting with the client, uh, mm-hmm. like advice and brief services, it's not that much. And this is, um, you yeah. know, three hours spent going over something that ends up depriving the client of their liberty. Mm-hmm. And, right. and for three hundred for three hours, he billed like ballpark 500 bucks. <laughs> right. I mean, like that, First that's, year associate that is rate. not yes. a lot of money. Yes, for three Charles, hours that is what we bill. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But what I mean is I it's entirely reasonable. Well, no, right? like, no. I right. like I'm 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 billed out at because I work at a private firm and I'm billed out at 
about that per hour. Yeah. Right. And so like the idea that spending three hours of legal work to get your client a better plea deal is not money well spent seems bizarre <laughs> to me. The investigator cost a thousand dollars. Someone else worked on the case and found facts that convinced the prosecutor to make a better deal. A thousand bucks. And when he appealed at least one of those, Judge Ewing's supervisor approved it. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not like it's not like other people think he's being unreasonable here. Right. right? He can make the case to other people in the system that he should be getting this money. I do think that the I do think that just to. Uh, kind of put this maybe in a historical context of why you have such a widespread culture of 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 devaluing this kind of work, which, you know, people in different um, maybe areas of the law or different places in the country think is just outrageous, right? But this is so, so, so common and so accepted and so normalized. And I think you have to really place it in in a legacy of like, this is, this is a le- part of the legacy of the Civil War and Reconstruction era mm-hmm. um, um, policies in the South that, that really emphasize so called local control. Right. And this was about um, um, not wanting oversight by the federal government or any large kind of, uh, you know, accountability Mm -hmm. uh, uh, oversight kind of thing so that, um, you know, to continue to have really uh, racist uh, policies and outcomes um, um, on the local level. So that's what's going on here. And that's why that culture has kind of um, continued to be a problem across really, really large regions of the system. Um, And I just wanted to talk about how, um, you know, to bring it back to uh, uh, statistics and, and whatnot. So there are counties in Texas, even even large urban jurisdictions, where the percentage of cases where a request for an investigator is even made mm. to the court is less than one percent. Wow. So, um, so again, this is this is widely accepted practice. This is, you know, reading this this article or hearing about this case, it, it's not surprising at all for a lot of mm. attorneys who are working in the in this kind of system. And so the listeners understand, I mean, the reason you need, you often need an investigator on a case and you can't just go out and do it yourself is often the attorney will be there doing it himself with the investigator. I I go out with investigators a lot myself, but you, you need a witness there who is not an attorney Mm -hmm. on the case in case the, you know, the person you're speaking to, you know, later recants or refuses to testify or needs to be Mm -hmm. impeached. So it's, you know, it's a necessary part of any investigation. It's not just some, you know, frivolous, you know, you know, yeah. sending your work to someone else. There's, yeah, an, the, there's an argument. The attorney cannot be, themselves testify for the lay right. listeners. Right. Mm-hmm. There's an argument to be made that it's, it's penny wise pound foolish too, because uh, failing to investigate an alibi, and that's what you often need an investigator for to to confirm or reject an alibi that your client has told you. Uh, will end up being a problem on appeal. Uh, if if you if you're convicted of the crime, you appeal the case. Uh, you say my attorney didn't investigate a plausible alibi that I told him. I just wasn't anywhere near the crime scene. If that is fully and fairly litigated, that can be a, ch- a chance to um, get a retrial or get the conviction dismissed altogether. The problem, of course, is that public defenders are squeezed at the trial and the appellate level. So you don't always get a good attorney on appeal, much less a good attorney at the trial level. Um, so, of course, defendants just get caught in the middle and this never gets investigated at all unless you fully fund your defender's offices and your investigators. Well, and I think this also gets back to what happens when everything is settled by plea, mm-hmm. because the plea will 
essentially require you to waive your appeal. It'll, you know, like right. part part of the appeal, part of the plea deal is that you agree not to appeal. You know, there may be specific yeah. things. Those don't like always there are work. certain cases. Well, I mean, they may not work, but like it, it it's a bar that you have to jump over. Mm-hmm. Like once you've conceded that you're not going to attack, like sometimes there there'll be pleas where they're like, I won't attack it except on the grounds that the statute itself is unconstitutional right. or right. whatever. And they'll like set aside those kinds of appellate issues, mm-hmm. but you're not able to say I had an alibi if you allocute to the offense mm-hmm. that uh, as part of your plea deal where you admit to being there or participating in one way or another. And so, and so a lot of those issues and like, and I mean, the point of the investigator mm-hmm. is to not send your client in who is claiming innocence or, you know, has, you know, I mean, some of it is just to assure yourself, you know, that you're not, but I mean, right. And, you know, I think what and what I love so much about what Andrew Willey did in this case, and I want to extend the invitation, Andrew Willey, go on Mike Dicta. He, <laughs> he went and just just took such balls. He after he basically got kicked off the appointment, not he wasn't actually kicked off the appointment list, but after he was being denied appointments, he had a meeting with Judge Ewing, uh, presumably in Judge Ewing's chambers. And Willey brought a tape recorder with him and recorded the conversation. Yes. Love. And, and judge Ewing said like, just like everything that came out of his mouth was just like textbook. Like, you know, I'm a judge and I just want to move these cases. Oof. But the, the, like the choice quote was when he said, um, there is a delicate balance between making sure that the person gets adequately represented as opposed to did they get the best representation? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we're not. Yeah. The right. state of Texas is not paying for right. good representation. Right. We're, pay, we're paying for at, which me, you know, in, in, in judge Willie's, uh, our, our judge, um, Ewing's words meant, you know, he said no more than three hours. If a case results in a plea, and I think the listeners need to understand when they, and I've, I've done some of these, not in Texas, but I've done some of these similar uh, court-appointed indigent work before in misdemeanor cases. In those three hours, the bulk of that, I guarantee you, is time spent in court sitting and waiting mm-hmm. for your case to be called. Like right. at least an hour and a half, two hours of it is that. Like the expectation is you get the case, you know, you read over you know, whatever is emailed over to you, your the complaint and, and whatnot, you go into court, you, sh- you meet your client for the first time, you w- sit around and wait for what the, whatever the pro- to meet with the prosecutor, the prosecutor tells you what his deal is, and then you talk to your client and, you know, he, in the eyes of the court, hopefully takes the deal because for the system to work, mm-hmm the way it does, you know, 95, 99% of, of clients need to take these plea deals sight unseen. And that's, you know, exactly mm-hmm. the expectation in, in Galveston. Yeah. And yeah. just to make the point that judge Ewing wants what, what he considers adequate representation is exactly this kind of system routine that Mark just described. Um, but just to make the point that the, the, the guidelines for defense representation in Texas and across states that would not call the, adequate representation. Mm. Um, so 
judges are sort of actively um, uh, directing lawyers to do things that are that are not that are against what the guidelines and what um, laws are calling for in in their own jurisdictions. Yeah, I think there's like there's a big there's a big split on what I think anyone would think of as adequate representation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And by that, they would mean representation that was good and in the client's interest. And what Judge Ewing means by adequate representation is it won't be reversed as ineffective assistance of counsel on appeal. A window that right. keeps getting right. like an attorney reviewed it and signed off on it. Right. And that will be considered enough given, you know, like some bare bones recitation of the facts in the indictment, which would have met the, the, uh, the, the charging statute. Mm-hmm. And so therefore he was adequately represented, which is, which is an incredibly low bar. I mean, again, yeah. for the lay listeners, like ineffective assistance, you can have counsel who is asleep, drunk and still get upheld on appeal. The, the reason being that the, the higher courts give a lot of deference to what they think trial strategy might be. So I think there are actually decisions where the lawyer has fallen asleep at the counsel table and the court has said that could reasonably be construed as trial strategy. <laughs> and the entire legal world sort of scratches their head and it just keeps on going. It's, I would try it. <laughs> best, um, best profession so, to get you know, into. Yeah. Really you're, cool letting, you're letting the jury know your case is so good, you don't right. even have to be aware. That's yeah. I mean, Look, don't like, give Gorsuch funny. any ideas. <laughs> I, I mean, the other thing about the recording is that in his, in, in Willie's uh, complaint, as he goes through the recording, one of the things that happened was that, like, you can't get too in the weeds and something like this, but they had what was, they call it the jail docket. And it seems kind of like an arraignment docket basically. Mm -hmm. And he got pulled off of cases where he handled the arraignment. And over the course of the call, uh, judge Ewing gave like three different reasons why he pulled him off the case. (laughs) And it's like, he was just kind of making it up as he went along. And it's like, it really seems very clear. We didn't get, apparently there may be an answer in this already, but we didn't sort of get it offline before we could record. But it really seems pretty clear that Ewing just wanted to get this guy out of his courtroom. Mm. Like, I think he probably was receiving appointments from other judges, but the judge who ended up with the case where Ewing specifically pulled him off wasn't going to sort of poke his colleague, and he kept him off the case even though uh, it would seem that he should have stayed on it. Right. And he was, and I think what seemed to really break judge Ewing was that he had started filing. um, Willie had started filing these, um, all these motions sort of challenging the way the constitutionality of the way that bail was being set in Galveston, that all of these people were basically given these bail, these bond amount, these cash bond amounts that they couldn't possibly afford. And then that violated, you know, the constitutional right. requirements for sending bond. And I think that mm-hmm. is, you know, probably even more than Willie's request for for resources. I think this is the kind of thing that's really going to set a judge like this off mm-hmm. because, you know, the jail docket of all things, I'm sure Judge Ewing thought of as this is where we like grind through all these cases and resolve most of them. And, you know, a few of them trickle through. And now here comes this guy, you Mm -hmm. know, filing these constitutional motions and making my day longer. And, you know, it's another, you know, 
45 minutes before we can call recess for the day. And I think, you know, that's the, the feeling when you're in court, especially when you're in any kind of misdemeanor court is very much. Mm -hmm. Let's let's move things along. Let's get this done as quickly as possible. Like it's not, at least in my experience, it's not even like you're in a legal setting. It's really like you're in a administrative setting for, you know, moving files along and anytime I've ever seen in that setting, anyone get up and sort of challenge things in a way that disrupts this flow. There's always this groan and the groan often comes from other <laughs> defense attorneys because so many of these other defense attorneys are perfectly happy with this. You know, I bill three hours for every, you know, plea I get through and the more pleas I can churn through, you know, the more, the more money I can get. And why are you, you know, Mr. Willie coming in here and trying to mess. With and, and I think like a protest and this just gets to how the justice system kind of sees itself and where kind where the seams show a little, mm. I think forcing cash bond on misdemeanor cases is a way to get pleas. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Once, once, oh, yeah. once an indigent defendant is stuck in jail anyway, you might as well just fucking plead out. And then, you know, like your sentence isn't going to be much longer than it would take for you to get to trial anyway. And so it's just like that's exactly why you're not supposed to be able to do it. But I think that just helps the like the system in its like most grotesque sense run efficiently. So uh, I'm going to plug a nonprofit that I don't work for but is doing really good things. Uh, <laughs> shocking. Uh, there, it's a group called the Bronx Freedom Fund and um, Bronx Freedom Fund. Uh, in New York, in the Bronx. And what they do is uh, it's basically a revolving fund where they loan out uh, money, sometimes as low as $250, to people so they can post bail, so they can go home and prep for their case from home. And every every year they publish their annual report, which every nonprofit has to do. And their annual report is a goldmine of statistics showing just how much the fact of cash bail, even $200, um, is, is exactly what Charles is saying, a way to coerce plea deals. They have um, untold stories of people who were on the verge of pleading guilty to a crime they just didn't do. Um, what, one is especially poignant. It's a woman who um, was arrested on aggravated assault charges. She was about to plead guilty. She makes the Bronx Freedom Fund uh, payment. She goes home. She's able to prove that it was her domestic partner that committed the assault, not her. And she was about to this plead is, to it. That's how our justice uh, system yeah. works. It's Mike Dicta's second endorsement after the Rad Sapper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you imagine if we ap appeal to them for sponsorship? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> we are uh, looking for improvements in sound quality. Uh, no, that that's amazing. I mean, it's funny. That's that seems to be part of like a general trend of really mm -hmm. sort of grassroots civic activism, like the people who cleared the lunch funds in Minnesota in the wake of the Philando Castile exactly, shooting, yeah. or the people who, uh, um, God, there was another example that was top of mind and has just fallen out of my. Was head. it a fees and fines? Uh, the one? people who were repairing taillights, mm. like because taillight stoppages is one of the ways that people end up interacting with the police. Like there was, uh, like people buying student loan debt and things mm. like that. Like there are like these kinds of grassroots ways of you know keeping people out of the system 
and getting ground down by it. Mm-hmm. I think is I think things like that are like fantastic and really noble. A way to cut it out too would be like it, there, there's no reason for a lot of these people to be in jail in the first place. Like if you if you're committing a crime where you're jumping a turnstile in New York, you're you're depriving the state of 275. So in compensation, they'll spend 300 a night to send you to Rikers. Like it's it just doesn't make any sense from any way you look at it. Um, yeah. Wholesale top to bottom reform to fix the misdemeanor docket to make it fairer would be a good place to start. So we don't have to re- or rely on charitable bail funds. Yeah. yeah, and meanwhile, yeah, and I, while the while the grassroots stuff is going on, I think I think lawsuits like this. I mean, I don't know how how far it'll get on the merits or mm-hmm. or anything like that, but but lawsuits like this that are really pointing out in the course of making this complaint what the systemic issues are. I mean, this really gets at the 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 complaint itself really gets at the heart of like look, this system has set up a conflict of interest where where a, a defense attorney is at once sort of. Um, supposed to be representing um, their client, obviously, but also, um, you know, a judge who appoints them, therefore, is the person, you know, uh, effectively like signing their paycheck um, is is demanding uh, less than adequate representation and how how that system is sustainable. I mean, it isn't yep. really. What do you all think yeah. of the? And I think this is this is probably a good time just to plug uh, for people who are hearing this one for the first time. We talk about a lot of this uh, in episode eleven mm. uh, because a lot of changes to like the bail system and how cases are being charged. We talked about in the context of the new Philadelphia DA Larry Krasner, um, and so it's sort of a good discussion there too. Mm-hmm. And. I think it's worth pointing out just as a follow up. One of the things that I talked about on that episode is that it's possible that some of his reforms will be foiled by judges who don't go along. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely starting to see that mm. in uh, in Philadelphia prosecutors who are making sentencing recommendations in plea deals at the low end or below the low end of the guidelines uh, or the sentencing range. You're seeing judges refuse to take the offer deals, uh, and whether that is strictly on their own accounts or whether it's the result of, like, you know, victim impact statements or people coming into court and whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it may end up being that Krasner himself has to get cre- more creative in how they charge the exactly. crimes he can fix it. to take it out of the to take it out of the judge's yep. hands too. Uh, and so that's sort of, I guess, an evolving story in Philadelphia. Uh, anyone else have any comments on oh. this before we move on to chapter two? What do you all think? Names yeah. Like <laughs> what do you all think of the merits <laughs> of the claim itself? It's a First Amendment claim? Like the, the uh, actual complaint is saying that he was deprived of his First Amendment rights to zealously advocate for his, his clients. It strikes me as the sort of thing that and maybe call me a pessimist and a cynic, it strikes me as the sort of thing you file to get attention, uh, and meaning people like us talk about it and spread the word about how awful the system is. Uh, but I don't. the merits of it strike me as uh, dubious, but uh, I'm not a First Amendment guy. Uh, maybe some of y'all are. Uh, I, think, I think it may be dubious on the merits in the Southern District of Texas. I didn't give enough thought to it. I think it, I think it will be less dubious. No, I didn't even mean that as a geographic thing. Mm. I think it will be less dubious on the merits uh, 
in the city mm-hmm. of Galveston. Sure. I think it will be a big deal locally. Mm-hmm. I think I think it will like the judges who were upholding Willie's, you know, fee appeals mm-hmm. and the other judges who are kind of going to be called to account. I mean, who knows, right? Like you can be really cynical about this, like you can be about everything else, but he really lays out a very good case Mm -hmm. for how uh, judges in like the judges are just churning people through the system in an unfair way and kind of disdaining defense work entirely as if they're just supposed to be rubber stamping plea offers. And so I, like you said, Ames, I think it may have like more of an effect there than as a viable first amendment. claim. And on the flip side, there's nothing federal judges love to do more than to tell state judges that they're not doing a good job. (laughs) (laughs) uh, All right. That's a actual legal analysis is a good way to close it. Um, Uh, so I guess with that, um, we will go to our uh, our second case of the day. Somebody uh, wake up, Adam. Is, what? <laughs> Here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited for yeah, this one. Yeah, we end up. Someone say housing? Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is now we end up in Adam's wheelhouse, uh, which is uh, this one is this one is uh, filed in in my neighborhood, uh, filed in the Southern District of New York. Uh, the National Fair Housing Alliance and a number of similarly uh, similarly focused uh, organizations, the Fair Housing Justice Center, the Housing Opportunities Project for Excellence, Fair Housing Council of Greater San Antonio, have gotten together and collectively are suing Facebook for housing discrimination because, and this is just sort of another thing uh, that, that dovetails with all of the Cambridge Analytica stuff you're seeing in the news about how all of the deep information that Facebook collects and shares and sells can be used against you. In this specific case, what they're suing for is the way Facebook allows people offering apartments for rent to target who the ads go to. Specifically, they have stopped allowing you to show targets only to African American only to exclude African Americans from searches or to show them only to African Americans that was something that ProPublica caught a couple of years ago and Facebook stopped doing that but they still allow all kinds of proxies for what you can exclude which uh, in the NFHA's telling allows you to screen out anyone with kids or it allows you to screen out anyone of Latino descent, or at least do a better job of it than you could if you were showing it to everyone. I think one of them was like you could screen out Telemundo listeners. Wow. Yeah. Well, what if you're just a big fan of Univision? <laughs> well, then you don't get a chance, but you're the minority of the minority. 
Um, but yeah, that's basically it. I mean, we'll see how, we'll see how Facebook responds to this, but that is, that is the kind of screen is that people who, who like, but they say it's essentially proxy for national origin and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And, and I think it should be noted that national origin is not the only protected class that Facebook, um, is allowing these ads to, um, to sort of not target, um, there are besides all these proxies for national origin, you can explicitly select for, um, you know, not to target folks with kids of certain ages. Um, and family composition is a protected fair housing act class. Mm. Um, beyond that, you can also, um, exclude folks who are interested in, um, wheelchair parking stickers, um, disability, as you might imagine is a protected class under the fair housing act. Um, it's, it's really, I reading the complaint, I was kind of wondering like whether Facebook had any lawyers at all. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what's amazing is how on notice of this they were, yeah. right? Because, because going, like I said, going back a couple of years ago, they said they there fixed was a it. ProPublica what? They said they fixed it. Well, yeah, they said they fixed it because there was a big ProPublica expose where they're like where they proved that you could like you could make apartments available and screen out anyone who is African American. And so they wouldn't even and like what this means is like in the sidebar ads, you just wouldn't see it. You wouldn't even know that it was available. Like it's not like it's not like, you know, a sort of no dogs or Irish sign in the window of like, a you know, the 1800s like bar in New York or whatever. You just wouldn't even know there was an apartment available in the first place because Facebook wouldn't show the ad to you. Mm-hmm. Charles, thank you for acknowledging that the Irish are, are the most discriminated against racial <laughs> yeah. in the United well, States. Well, they were slaves too. Yes, the they were day, slaves too. I, who, who could forget? <laughs> Well, this was that was actually fun fact explicitly contemplated in the original Fair Housing Act, which includes an exemption hmm. known as the Mrs. Murphy exemption. Um, and the Mrs. Murphy exemption exists because um, you know it was explicitly contemplated that the, that the um, that I guess an an Irish American widow um, you know might want to rent out her bed and breakfast, but she might be you know, so racist that she does not want to rent it out to people um, you know different different skin colors. So they allowed her to continue not renting it out. Um, and it's a, a whole title of the act. How did they carve it out? Wait. Uh, I think basically through floor debate. Huh. Um, it's named after what? a comment made by a Vermont senator. Wait, does that still exist? It is still good law. It is on the books. And and is it, but is it because it's like there's only one unit or something? Yeah, so it's for folks who reside in one of the units in the building for buildings that have less than four or five mm. uh, yeah. units. Though I still, though it's, I think whatever it says in the federal housing law, I don't think you can get away with it on Craigslist. Like, I think, like, no, because I think right. for the Craigslist's community standards will flag mm. that, like, Mrs. Murphy has to advertise in a national newspaper. Right, right. Well, because because Craigslist community standards would flag that kind of thing. That's, Facebook, that's one of the other aspects of of the um, the law is, is that there's a there's a, a black letter prevention. Like, you, you, you can't you can't advertise um, 
in any discriminatory manner, you know, even if you meet any kind of these exemptions. Um, and just like you can't advertise, you also cannot host those advertisements, which is what Facebook Oh, so, is so basically Miss Murphy would get away with it by just putting a for rent sign in the window and then chasing off anyone who didn't meet her discriminatory criteria. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not good, but at least now sort of structurally, I understand how it works and why Craigslist would sort of do, would have standards that are more inclusive than the law. And then Adam, um, um, on the, on this suit though, I mean, like you just said, it's my understanding that Facebook is, says that advertisers, not Facebook are responsible for making sure that their content, their advertisements mm-hmm. are, are non-discriminatory, but that's, that's, that's wrong, right? The, the, the FHA's prohibitions on discriminatory advertising, those apply both to the person who drafted the ad and, and also to the publisher, right? That, that, that applies to, to newspapers too, to, to everybody who might be dis- disseminating that ad. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's well settled that, that you cannot publish, um, you know, any discriminatory advertisement, um, that's in the text of the act. Um, so I, what, what Facebook has sort of been doing throughout this, uh, it kind of strikes me is that they've, they've created this sort of space and created this, you know, free market without any kind of, um, you know, civil rights enforcement. Mm. And then, you know, been shocked to discover piece by piece that, you know, actually these extremely important civil rights laws do apply to like online. It's real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of one of the things that I think got me is one of the things that they were able to deselect was explicitly for sex for men or women. Wow! Right, and that one that one just seems too broad for Facebook to have missed. Right, like the other ones, like it's bad and wrong, and you could see their attorneys sort of sheepishly <laughs> saying, "Oh, we didn't realize that there was a back door because all of these things are algorithmically generated. Like we don't really have someone actually paying attention to these categories." And thank you for bringing it to our attention, and all that kind of PR bullshitty way of dealing with it. But mm-hmm. I don't think they could do that for. You know, NFHA, this is from paragraph 97 in tech in like just I just sort of scrolled to this at random in their San Antonio uh, when they were sort of checking the San Antonio market. NFHA also used the Facebook pre-populated list and the inclusion feature to select the preset demographic option of men, <laughs> thereby excluding women from from the, you know, the boost, which is where you're pushing your ad from the boosts potential audience. So just, just selected men. <laughs> like how does that stay on the list? Something interesting that, that caught, caught my eye on the complaint too is, and you can find this in the ProPublica reporting of it too. Um, Facebook has 2 billion monthly users. So a little less than a third of the human race uses Facebook a month. Are they, are they, are they, is, is that including, or is that excluding like duplicate users or do we really have a, a public utility in private hands that reaches a third of humanity and it's not really clear how it's governed by fair housing law? Yeah. <laughs> Adam has shrugged, by the way. <laughs> I mean, my, yes. My favorite thing about this was like the second, t- I think it was the second time ProPublica came back and said, Hey, we're still able to like, 
you know, do that, we're still able to like exclude racial groups by, by proxy. Facebook's response was to fix it by adding a self certification <laughs> that you were not discriminating. So basically like after you put up your ad at the end, you like check a box that says, no, I am not discriminating by, you know, race, <laughs> gender, or any yeah. other protected class was just like such a, like, Silicon Valley, I feel like approach <laughs> to like, like they just, they're never going to be able to wrap their heads around. Like they, there's something about the way the brains work that they just can't wrap their heads around. Like, like these sort of issues. So Mark Zuckerberg was just like, what we had like, uh, you know, we had a rap session about racism in, you know, the foosball room at <laughs> Facebook HQ and that, that sort of resolved the issue. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think if anything, it's, this is a good example of like the value of like, humanities education, um, you know, opposed to just, <laughs> you know, pure STEM, uh, because at the very least you can, you know, figure out that if you um, are violating one of the most important civil rights laws in the country, <laughs> instead of just sitting down with the reporters who crack the case, you could talk to your attorneys about it and fix more than, mm-hmm. you know, just the things that were in the report. Imagine the, imagine yeah. the securities exchange act saying, uh, click here to certify that you are not committing fraud with this IPO. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is the difference between uh, adequate compliance with the Fair Housing Act and good faith <laughs> compliance with the Fair Housing Act. <laughs> so, yeah, so this one, I think, on the merits, uh, <laughs> to get back to, like, I think this is pretty strong on the merits. I don't think, I don't think Facebook is going to, Take this one as far as uh, as uh, Judge Ewing will. I think Facebook is going to try to find a technical solution to this kind of thing pretty quickly. Yeah, is it that hard to find a technical solution to just removing the ability to do this? What right. I, yeah. Right. No, That's I don't think so. What's so shocking <laughs> about this is like their inability to sort of get the really like like what Adam has been describing the black letter of of the law that yes publishers of discriminatory content are going to be um in violation of of the FHA I mean it's it doesn't there's there's an easy it seems like there's such an easy solution to right now you guys have a drop down menu that allows people to choose <laughs> soccer moms right um so stop that yeah i mean i thought one of the things that i thought was interesting was how they how they got standing um, because right. They're not an ad target. Mm. They're an advocacy group. Organizational way, standing. What? Organizational standing. Yeah. But the way that they got organizational standing is they asked for damages in the amount that they had to spend basically to publicly correct the record. Wow. You know, like they, like they went, they, I think, let's see if I could find it exactly scrolling. Uh, the they exp, they expended staff time. This is like paragraph one twenty four and forward, right? To address an attempt to counteract the effects of the discriminatory conduct, each plaintiff has engaged in public education campaigns to raise awareness mm. of the problem of discriminatory housing advertising. They drafted guidelines for housing advertisers. They spent. Sp- they have time to develop education campaigns and design advertisements for social media to reach housing providers and posted the ads on Facebook and Twitter. They expended staff time to communicate with each other 
so that they could coordinate. And so they, so all of the time that they spent trying to unfuck Facebook, <laughs> they're claiming as damages uh, that Facebook should compensate them for because it's but for Facebook's discriminatory conduct. So it's not just a claim for injunctive relief. They're claiming that they were, they specifically sustained damages as a way of getting into the door. Uh, and maintaining jurisdiction over the claim, we, which I thought was clever. Have we done an explainer what standing is on the pod before? No, but <laughs> that is too much. <laughs> no, no, actually, we'll get to stand. We'll actually, we'll talk a little bit about standing in segment yeah, three. Yeah, because I, I love think it's standing. very interesting. Um, but... Uh, but Ames, two sentences on standing okay. in this context. Um, so to get into court, the, the Constitution says under Article 3, Section 1, you have to have a case or controversy, meaning you can't just say, I'm really pissed off. Let's go to court to settle this. You have to actually have um, some stake in the action. So you can't. I can't say as an American, like, I think the Iraq war is bullshit. So I'm going to sue the government to stop the Iraq war because you're not personally affected by the war. Even if you're a soldier, that's a whole different thing. Don't worry about it for now. Because you can't say that with Mark on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> um, the specifically, specifically then the it, Supreme court has said the taxpayer standing is not sufficient. Right, 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 right. Because right. You, you yourself are hurt. as a taxpayer. Yeah. You're the that that your tax money is being spent in a way you don't approve of does not mean that you have a personal stake in every government action, right? And every but expen- if, public expense. If you are personally aggrieved by it, so what? What um, the group is doing here is they're trying to they're trying to demonstrate how they're personally aggrieved by this since their um, marketing campaign was necessary. It's clever. Yep. I don't. I don't. Yeah. Again, like I'm not sure that that. That jumps the the bar, but like in the other case, I think it'll probably result in changes to the way Facebook handles. Mm-hmm. Like I think there were there were three categories. It was housing ads, ads for credit, like extending credit, mm. and there was a third category uh, that was grouped in with those two, which were subject to anti discrimination laws. <laughs> yeah, that is slipping my mind. Yeah, well, th- this is actually this is actually a really common um, method of getting standing, especially for housing groups. Um, is you get organizational standing. Oh, good. Um, so, like groups that do you know various housing civil rights work, um, especially ones that that do um, work around. Um, renters who are, you know, seeking places, I mean, being denied for various reasons that what they'll do is they'll send testers. Um, you can, yeah. like one cool thing that you can do is you can be a housing civil rights tester, um, contact your local organization, see if they, you know, have need of your services. Um, and, and so, you know, these organizations will spend time like going to various places and saying like, you know, I'm, you know, like a, dual income, no kids. Uh, do you want us? Um, you know, I'm like a single mother. Do you want me to rent? Um, you know, I, you know, I'm African American. Do you want me to rent? Um, and the diversion of resources is, is basically all there is as far as like the injury in fact, mm-hmm. in all these cases. And, and it's just really common mm-hmm. practice. And it turns out to be the only way you uncover this sort of thing. Um, since it's all yeah. happens in the background. Yeah, that's uh, that is the, the testers is how they busted Trump back in the seventies, right? I think so. No, I think that was like a public investigation was how they busted uh, Trump for not renting to African Americans in uh, in the apartments that he owned, and ended up with a consent decree. It's it's and we also never heard you, from uh, him again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> he confessed error, and uh, now now he just has a couple of properties. Um. All right. Any uh, any other comments on uh, National Fair Housing Alliance versus Facebook? So Justice Scalia wrote a pretty interesting law review article on standing, which uh, I, I figured y'all would shout me down. Then I figured I wouldn't get to talk anymore about <laughs> yep. it. Yeah, hey, no, standing sucks. No, absolutely not interesting. It's a component of the separation <laughs> of powers. I think I think Justice Scalia's article on standing was like. One sentence, and it just oh. said, "You don't have it." <laughs> that's that's true. Yes, <laughs> Ames is going to host a four-part episode on uh, the Uniform Commercial Code and commercial paper. I think this really get our <laughs> cover all the the areas of law that our listeners are really going to find the most fascinating. In the hood, living in a fishbowl. Gentrify here, now it's not a shithole. Trend set up, I know my shit's cold. And set up it because I ain't so bold. But yeah, all you black folks, you must go. All you Mexicans, you must go. All right. Awesome. All right. So, and so for our final case of the day, a treat, something that was a couple of people requested uh, that we cover uh, generally, but not specifically. People want to hear Mike Dicta on uh, Sovereign Citizens, and I can't imagine a better way of covering Sovereign Citizen law than to have Jared Fogle turn into a sovereign citizen. It's like the, it's the, it's the second season of Jared Fogle criminal that no one saw coming. Uh, <laughs> but he is, but he is, uh, he uh, filed with two of his, uh, with two of his buddies at the Colorado, uh, what is it? Littleton, Colorado jail. Um, yeah. He's in jail in Littleton, Colorado, federal uh, prison with two guys, James Fry and Frank Pate. Uh, and the three of them have combined just for judicial efficiency, they say, to sue everyone involved in all of their prosecutions. All of the judges who heard a motion, all of the AUSAs, some <laughs> investigating officers, uh, Fogel is suing his own counsel. <laughs> Uh, but all of them are suing on various racketeering charges uh, because the purpose of all of these illicit prosecutions uh, was, in Fogel's case, to steal the subway fortune. Uh, <laughs> and and in other cases, um, to steal the proceeds of all of their various schemes. Mm-hmm. And like... It is. I've read some other Sovsit work, <laughs> and this is hard to read. Yeah, even uh, by those because, standards. Yeah, yeah, even by those standards, because like one of the big hallmarks of sovereign citizen litigation is using terms that you don't understand, and then explicating them at length with utterly non-controversial law that doesn't apply to your case at all. That's well said. And so it took me like a couple of pages to figure out what 
what kind of thing that uh, that Fogel was suing over. And the first I thing still he says, <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is unintelligible. I have no idea what this yeah, is about. Well, I mean, well, <laughs> among other things, they don't number their paragraphs. <laughs> like, it's just it's just this kind of stream of consciousness gibberish. But eventually uh, what he gets around to saying is that there's no warrant or affidavit in support of the mm-hmm. warrant in the court file. And he makes a really big deal out of that. And one of the reasons he's suing his attorneys is that there's no affidavit in support of a warrant or the warrant in the court file. And look, I he he's probably right. And he's probably right you heard because it here, he pled guilty. Oh, what? <laughs> Just say you heard it here, no, Jared. No, 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 Exhibit no. Two, Mike uh, my guess is that the warrant and supporting affidavit is in his attorney's personal mm. files. Like, like it doesn't not exist. It just wasn't entered into evidence because it was never contested in the case, right? They had a warrant when they showed up. His attorney reviewed the warrant <laughs> over the course of the the plea negotiations. And but they're all they're all being sued for for everything. Should, and like it's but it's crazy. We, like the whole should we should we give background on what sovereign citizen claims normally look like? Like what the theory is is supposed sure. to be. I, I have sure. Um and I, I think this is not this is not explicitly sovereign citizen exactly. claim itself. I think we it's sovereign citizen generally because it's crazy and I think his uh, the the two other guys who are involved in the suit, Frank Pate is is I think the mastermind. He's the pro se, you know. He's he's the he's the jailhouse lawyer. He, mm-hmm. He's in. Uh, I looked him up. He's in prison on for wire fraud for some foreign currency trading scheme Bitcoins. that involved. Yes, was it bitcoins? It was no, I know. I'm just million. making that up. <laughs> no, no, it was forex. It, was it wasn't currency. bitcoins. Um, and then the other guy is this James Nathan Fry, who is. Who is a hedge fund guy who was involved in wire fraud? Who it was like a you know billions of dollars. So these are not like you know guys who are in federal prison for you know dealing yeah. crack or anything. These are mm. all yeah, men pay, who had a lot of money. The paid claim. The paid claim is the one that most sounds like yes. sovereign citizen stuff because it has stuff like you know the 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 defendant, the AUSA, illegally forged the signature of the grand jury four person, and the the allegation indictment was not presented in an open court return. And like he like all of these are treated as terms of art that are completely alien to mm-hmm. me. But I think they're very meaningful to him. But I think basically what sovereign citizens that what that movement believes is that the federal government as it is, is not, is not an actual entity that has any power under the constitution. If you choose not to consent to that power, then they have no The federal courts have no power to criminally prosecute you unless under like very limited circumstances, unless you're on in like a, military base or some sort of federal land mm-hmm. basically there's no such thing as a federal crime and as long as you continue to contest that they 
everything that they're doing against you is fraudulent. Yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, it's like it's sort of it. There are things that sound very sovereign citizeny, but I guess what it mostly is is just a really shitty pro se filing. Um, like, um, by the way, I want to point out that among the defendants, like each of the defendants sues everyone who was involved in their prosecution. Mm. Then the three of them collectively uh, have as one of the defendants attorney general of the United States, comma. Obama administration. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like not even the current attorney general who's being sued. And I'm not sure what kind of relief they expect to get from uh, Eric Holder. He's he's angling for like this pro Trump, like Trump's going to see this and be like, oh, Obama, I'm going to, he's going to be pro Jared now. Yeah. Jared actually. He does sue Jared Fogel sues for nineteen million dollars trebled to fifty seven million dollars, and he's the reasonable one of the three uh because Fry is suing for a trebled thirty eight and Pate for a trebled twenty four um but like but it's it's just sort of fascinating, like one of the things that he claims. And it, like this one, I think is funny and interesting. He claims he was Fogel was convicted of conspiracy. Uh, he was convicted of conspiracy to uh, distribute child pornography because his friend, who was actually the child pornographer, uh, texted him uh, pictures of uh, children engaging in sexual activity that he collected um, with hidden cameras. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was pretty a, bad. There was no. You you will not be surprised to find out that there were shady circumstances <laughs> in the making of the child pornography. Yeah, they were they were people that the other guy knew. Like it wasn't like just sort of a hidden camera or like just distributing stuff mm. that was on the deep web or whatever. He was actually making like you know, this stuff himself and sharing with, but so here's his complaint, Jared, he was convicted of conspiracy to, to share this under U 18 USC 2252 a two, right? That's the provision. And he says conspiracy is not part of a two, right? It is, you can commit the crime under a two, but I was convicted of conspiracy and conspiracy is not under that section. And he's actually right, because the conspiracy statute is 2252B1, right? It's like an inch and a half down the page, (laughs) right, is the conspiracy to commit the crime statute. And, of course, there's also, like, USC 371, which is like the omnibus Mm. federal conspiracy statute. But, like, he makes a lot of hay over the specific statute that the indictment and the plea mentions, which is 2252A2. And I kind of wonder why he was charged on the conspiracy instead of, like, you know, just receipt of this. Because, like, I read the information Mm, and I read the allocution Mm. and he, you know, or the, you know, the statement of facts in the plea agreement. And he, he stipulates to having directly participated in all of this stuff, but the charging statute is not the conspiracy paragraph, which I just thought was a little weird. These like little in, in a proper, normally all the pieces of a, of a, prosecuting instrument fit together like neat little puzzle pieces but 
because the stuff is so complicated and intricate and interwoven, it will often look to the the lay reader like there's some gap and the pieces don't quite fit. And invariably, what every if it's not particularly sovereign citizen, what, what a lot of pro se claims will have in common is they'll grab onto one of those little technicalities and blow it out of proportion. And aha, I have you. You forgot to um, cross a T when you signed it. Ergo, the indictment is invalid. And in fact, that is number one, not how the real world works. Uh, and number two, there are always little saving statutes saying, like, even if this wasn't done, then the prosecution is still valid, etc. Um, so right. aside from the fact that he's wrong on the claim, it's not how the world works in law and practice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. the other thing I think that, that he tries to uh, sort of make hay of um, in the complaint and in the um, amicus is um, he tries to challenge the, the sort of the mens rea, the, the, the intent part of um, the you know, criminal code that he was charged under, um, you know, by saying like, um, it, it's it's alleged that I traveled to New York City, that I crossed state yeah, lines. This, to just so you know, th- this goes back to like this was this goes back to his like more direct criminal challenge yeah. of his of his plea. But yeah, this is like that's the other action, right? But yeah, but you can go on, right? Go. Right. So the other the other action, right, is is that he's challenging his, his criminal plea, saying um, that you know, oh, you're you're saying that. Um, I I cross state lines with the purpose of you know engaging in uh, illegal sexual activity. Uh, what actually happened is I crossed state lines because I was crossing them um, because I was a subway spokesman, um, and that you know the illegal activity, the child pornography happened while I was there, but I was just traveling to you know do spokes spokesman stuff for subway. And yeah, no, this actually this one isn't child pornography. This was the hiring of underage prostitutes. <laughs> In New York. Um, but that's what he says. He says, like, he says the statute says that I was traveling for the purpose of hiring underage prostitutes. But in fact, I was traveling to run in the New York City Marathon with a subway T-shirt on. And I only incidentally hired child prostitutes. Um, so he's innocent. And, and he's, <laughs> though he stipulates that that's illegal under state law. Right. He's like, I admit that I could have been charged under New York state law with hiring child prostitutes, but because my intent wasn't, and of course, everyone, uh, what is the answer to this uh, particular claim? You can have more than one intent. Like he set up, (laughs) he set up the appointment with the prostitutes before he crossed state lines, right? Like he had made the appointment when he was in Indiana um, at home. And so there were just two reasons why he went to New York. <laughs> and like, again, in his plea, he stipulated to, he stipulated to crossing state lines for that purpose. You know, I mean, it was like a couple of the, the other, I mean, the other underlying claim uh, that he made when he was challenging in the, on the child pornography one was he's like, I was charged with the interstate, with sending uh, child pornography in interstate commerce. And he's like, number one, it wasn't commerce. <laughs> and number two, and number two, the guy who sent it to me was also in Indiana. And so it was never interstate. It was intrastate. And the answer to that is like the use of 
a telephone or cell phones Mm -hmm. is per se interstate because you have taken advantage of the interstate telecom system. Mm -hmm. And so everything under the wire act that goes over a phone is considered interstate, but that just doesn't like make any sense to sort of a lay reader of the law. And so that's why it was in his uh, complaint, which is really funny. Like to me, the judge, the judge who read that amicus brief, if you, if you read her opinion, it's like three paragraphs long and like, it challenges subject matter jurisdiction just because they don't know what subject matter jurisdiction means. And so it's just like the sovereign can only charge. And the judge read that one sentence, right? And goes, oh, this is sovereign citizen crap. I'm dismissing it out of hand without even reading it when it very easily could have actually been dismissed on the merits. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be funny if that, gets appealed to the Seventh Circuit <laughs> if the Seventh Circuit actually re- – no, it doesn't kick it back, but actually addresses it on the merits mm. for all of the reasons why it's just factually and legally wrong. So, so the complaint's premise is that the whole the whole prosecution of Fogel and all the other people that are now incarcerated under this uh, was, was illegal. And what they claim, by the way, elevates it to RICO and the racketeering and – what's the I? I forgot the I. Shit. Um, influenced corruption. That's it. Yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, what makes it a RICO claim is that emails about the case were sent by the judge to his own attorney across state lines. Got him. <laughs> oh, so that's where that makes it federal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and it was all just to, it was all just to get their money. Um, one of the, one of the other things that I thought was very funny, though, this goes back to his original prosecution is that if you go through the docket, someone else tried to file an amicus brief early in the process. And that guy was a jailhouse uh, lawyer too. And he filed an amicus brief to make sure that Jared Fogel got the max. (laughs) Now, like his amicus wasn't available without me paying for it. So I didn't read it. And it was just dismissed on the grounds that a judge in the district court just has complete discretion to not read someone's bullshit papers. <laughs> and so, and so she just didn't accept the amicus brief, but someone, someone wrote and tried to submit an amicus brief as a jailhouse lawyer, mm. just to argue that Jared Fogel received the maximum mm. sentence. Um, as I'm going to be a Debbie downer here for a second. And I, uh-huh. um, I'm sorry, but, uh, so I, I think, you know, this case is like, easily and justifiably mocked because, you know, of the defendants involved, obviously we know who Jared Fogel is and what he did. And these these two other guys are, you know, were white collar criminals of the worst sort and very easily mocked. But I think mm-hmm. my my understanding is in in federal court or in in federal prison, these sort of suits happen all the time Mm -hmm. and they do happen from, you know, guys who are, do not fit this description guys who are in for, you know, drug dealing the, you know, whether, whatever you think of it, you know, simple possession, them being right. Simple possession or, or a, a relatively small amount of possession of crack cocaine or something. And they're suddenly find themselves in prison for 15, 20 years. And for a lot of guys like that, the, 
they don't understand what's going on in federal court because they've mm-hmm. maybe been through the state system before or they had no people who've been through the state system. And in the state system, you're typically getting, you know, supervised probation or mm-hmm. a very short term of years or something like this. And suddenly you find yourself getting, you know, very long prison terms for, you know, selling drugs and not doing much else. Mm-hmm. And you've seen, and you see reports of this. I, I hear about it from other attorneys, you know, guys, they, they, maybe they take a plea or maybe they're found guilty, but they're, but they're in prison and they, they don't, I think justifiably they don't understand why they are doing this incredibly long sentence and they assume something must be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Like they know other people get off for things. They know other people they know are not doing these long sentences and they end up getting caught in the sovereign citizen stuff. I remember like 10 years ago, I first read about it. There was a, I think it was in Baltimore. There mm. were a bunch of cases where guys were, you know, coming in and sort of, pushing their court appointed attorneys out of the way in federal court and, you know, challenging the case because there was, you know, gold fringe on the flag in the courtroom and, or because there was, their name was in capital letters Mm -hmm. in the indictment, which are very common sovereign citizen complaints that did not originate with these sort of, with, you know, drug dealers, but, you know, sort of trickle down to them in jail. And I think it does on a larger scale, this speaks to a frustration that a lot of prisoners have with the nature of their confinement, the Mm. length of their sentence. And obviously again, you know, Jared Fogle is not a sympathetic or good example of this, Mm -hmm. but when you see these kind of claims come up, for the most part, I think often they are reflecting just a sort of profound frustration with the system and with the representation they received. And and with how know. opaque the process is and with right, how right. with how difficult it is to open up, to open up, you know, uh, uh, the, the code, the federal code and, and make sense of 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 what just happened to you if you are if you are a prisoner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like I certainly I certainly am sympathetic to the sort of any port in a storm Mm -hmm. kind of nature of it, like where you've exhausted all other avenues and someone is sort of telling you that this might work. But I also can't help but feel that in a lot of these cases, it's a grift, too, because, you know, I like I don't think the jailhouse lawyers are necessarily doing it for nothing. Mm Uh, and I think, you know, it's just a lot of snake oil being sold. I mean, it's certainly snake oil being sold. It's certainly snake oil being sold on the outside where all of these people end up in prison because they're kind of bullshit tax protesters, right? Like that's what Wesley Snipes ended up in prison for, right? He spent like three years not, or four years not paying federal income tax. And he presented kind of sovereign citizen theories in his own defense. And I'm sure he was paying really good money to get to try to avoid (laughs) millions of dollars in federal tax. And it cost him like three years of his life. And he, I think, has rebounded from it about as well as anyone could. Like, it seems like most people who go down this rabbit hole never quite break the spell. Mm. And he seems like sort of really normal and like has like regained a kind of outlook on the world. Uh, You know, certainly his 
Twitter, his, like his Twitter presence seems like, you know, at peace with himself. Well, I, I'm withholding judgment <laughs> until we get Blade 4. So. <laughs> and, and yeah, I, I think that this segment, like the, the, the Jared Fogel case is funny because um, it's a guy who's pretty bad. Uh, and we're punching up like this is a guy, uh, he and his co-defendants who presumably had access to a good counsel, et cetera. Uh, but it's an enormous problem in the federal system and, and I think in courts everywhere that sometimes you get pro se complaints, meaning complaints from someone who doesn't have their own lawyer um, that look bullshit, but actually have merit to them. Uh, and it's an enormous problem to try to separate the wheat from the chaff uh, and to bring it full circle. Um often falls on people who shouldn't be doing that role, like prosecutors who have more time than defense lawyers in some cases to like, oh, this is a meritorious claim. Let's take it to supervisor. Um, and it, it, yeah. it's something that a lot of mechanisms in the system are created to try to help. Like um, uh, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act was created to try to winnow out um, frivolous claims. Uh, and arguably it now captures meritorious claims in it too. Um but it, it, yeah, it was meant to it was meant to filter out meritorious. Indeed, and yeah. <laughs> let's make let's make no mistake. Yeah, I'm being an optimist. The purpose was to filter out meritorious claims. So, so I, uh, obviously all the, all the Michael Cohen stuff blew up, uh, today and I definitely did not want that to go unremarked on while episode 12 was just sitting in, uh, production limbo (laughs) because by the time, uh, by the time we actually get around to episode 13, Michael Cohen will probably be in jail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we're going to cover that in the next episode. But. Right. The, 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 the Gillibrand administration uh, for episode 13. <laughs> so so uh, just to get that taken care of, um, I dialed up uh, Michael. Uh, so we could sort of quickly cover Michael Cohen uh, because this is like a double uh, insult to the hell dude because <laughs> he was traveling for work when we taped episode 12 and he's still on the road now. And I uh, do not feel like downloading Soundflower and messing with my settings so I could record both audio inputs. <laughs> and that is what you get when uh, – you uh, make the host of your podcast a guy who uh, only wants to use his computers for shitposting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, he's going to be even more annoyed when he learns that I have Soundflower already installed. <laughs> so easily could have done that for him. Yeah, but well. Such as life. Uh, no, no, no. Then it would have been me protesting because it would have been you talking to him. <laughs> right, that's true. Um, so, so, uh, just to catch everyone up quickly, of course, uh, I hit the news today that, uh, the FBI in conjunction with the Southern District of New York's U.S. Attorney's Office on a referral 
uh, I have read from the Mueller team uh, rated Michael Cohen, uh, Mike Dicta's favorite uh, attorney with whom we do not have an attorney-client relationship. (laughs) Uh, So we're safe. But they raided Michael Cohen's office and they raided his hotel apartment and they either did or did not raid his home. It's a little unclear. Apparently Michael Cohen is denying that. Right. Um, And and so – We've got a bunch of issues coming out of this, the primary one being, of course, uh, attorney-client privilege. Right. Uh, and I don't know if you've worked with this or if you've had clients who have had their uh, had their work files seized or their you know attorney files seized in a government raid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they there are a lot of people who are sweating. Uh, the attorney-client privilege implications, uh, but you will not be surprised to hear uh, that the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office has established protocols. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, Michael Cohen is not the first attorney they've raided. They routinely raid offices and people whose papers include their own con- – like you don't have to raid a law office to get attorney-client communications all you have to do is write a client's office or just dump their email right like clients email with their with their attorneys all the time but yeah and so and so what they're going to do uh now uh is they're going to set up uh a taint team uh in the u.s attorney's office and like i said on twitter uh, the only reason I'm doing a podcast is so that I could say taint team all the time <laughs> right. and make other people giggle while keeping a straight face myself <laughs> about it. Uh, and of course, the taint team is someone who is a group of attorneys uh, who are not the uh, who are not the prosecuting attorneys. Like they are basically going to be a set of attorneys who are firewalled off from the prosecution team whose entire role in this case is to work with Michael Cohen's attorneys to filter out the privileged communications. Right. Right. Like, like that's what they're going to do. And so, you know, there's going to be a lot of hemming and hawing from Michael Cohen and his side and Trump and, Laura Ingram apparently had a, a seizure on Twitter uh, <laughs> yes, about this. <laughs> uh, and it's like she's got a law degree. Uh, she knows better. Uh, like she actually knows better. That's like right. that's one of those moments where you just see her as a pure creature of propaganda. Right. Um, so, yeah. So that's going to go on. Uh and I mean uh, there are a lot of people on the defense bar side who are not particularly cool. With the idea of a dirty team and a clean team, like they don't think that the taint team is actually genuine or effective or done well or in good faith. And all of those are, you know, generalized complaints, but they're not complaints particular to today and the deep state. Right. Right. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's just what it is like to be prosecuted. 
yeah. is to have issues with the protocols of the prosecutor's office. But that doesn't make it any less standard that they do right. this sort of thing. And you know, and you mentioned that the U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, they have protocols for this stuff. And I think that's worth getting into a little bit because uh, it sort of raises an interesting, um, you know, there's an inference I think, which is. Uh, you know, these people are all having sort of fits about this because the attorney-client privilege is so sacred. But um, so the U.S. Attorney's Manual basically says if you're going to raid an attorney's office, it's not enough to establish probable cause that you'll find evidence of a crime there. Uh, you also need to establish that it's the least intrusive method for right. getting that evidence. So if you can get it from another source or if you can get it through the subpoena power, you have to do it that way instead. Right. Um, and- right. And right. And like this, and one of the grounds I think that you would generally have to not have to set forth, but one of the grounds that might be set forth in an application for a warrant like this is the likelihood of destruction of evidence. Right, exactly. Like and yeah. And I mean, like the fact the fact that um the fact is every public statement that Michael Cohen has ever made will be used against him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, he is just I mean, I don't know that it's actually going to be in the eventually uh public uh support for the warrant but i feel i feel like there's going to be a paragraph that just says uh you know it'll be like the line on like lillian hellman every word out of her every word out of her mouth it's a lie including (laughs) and and the yes exactly (laughs) so and so uh i think like that's just what's going to be it and like and i mean just to sort of talk about privilege more generally uh, the the one thing that you're going to hear people talking about a lot is the crime fraud exception Absolutely. to attorney client privilege, right? Like people defend people defend people who have committed crimes right. after the fact. That is that is a lot of what defense attorneys do: defending the innocent and the guilty, mm-hmm. right? You to the extent that your client is in the sort of philosophical sense guilty a lot of what you're doing after the fact is defending them right. the crime fraud exception is you can't do it in advance right. <laughs> you can't as an attorney if you are part of the commission of the crime right. or if you are part of a cover-up of the crime that goes beyond you know just helping your client defend themselves in the normal course your communications are no longer covered by attorney-client privilege. And, I mean, I don't know how much you've read about what he's being accused of. I mean, one of them seems to be the election law violations that we've been talking about and everyone's been talking about on Mike Dicta. Just, you know, like on our podcast, other people in the news, we're not unique on this. The $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels may or may not be considered an illegal contribution. Uh, the other thing they're calling bank fraud. Right. Uh, and do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like if you figured, have you sort of scoped out in your head what the nature of that is? Because I have a thought. Um, why don't we – I have a thought, but it's kind of uh, in in Kuwait. So let's, yeah. let's hear from you. 
Okay, so my I mean my thought is the banks on both sides of the transaction, right? The mm-hmm. the bank that had the account for uh, essential consultants. Is that right? Yes. The EC. Yeah. Okay. The bank that had the, the account for essential consultants has reporting requirements. Stormy Daniels attorneys receiving bank mm-hmm. has reporting requirements. Right. And when you do a money transfer of $130,000, right. the bank asks you why, right? <laughs> yeah. Like there's a, there's a thing that goes Ping! Right. Every time there's a transaction of $10,000 or more, and banks have fraud catcher right. mechanisms that require them to ask their clients why they did something. Right. Right. That is just standard banking practice. And I think that he is in trouble for bullshitting his bank on why $130,000 was sent from this uh, company account to the other attorney's account. That's right. Once you answer that question falsely, that's a bank fraud charge. Right, absolutely. Um, right? I, that's, that's where my head is as well. Yeah. You know, because, like, basically, it's bank fraud because the bank has its own reporting requirements, right? right? Exactly. The bank has to demonstrate to their own regulators that they are paying attention to what their customers are doing. Right. They have to say, we are responsible stewards of money. We saw a $130,000 transfer. We wanted to make our records clean to show that this wasn't an illicit transaction. So our records are effectively federal records. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, that's, that's what I think as well. Um, that's, and, yeah. And again, he's not the first person to get caught here. I mean, I don't know if people remember the details of the Elliot Spitzer thing. But one of the things that like Spitzer was prosecuted when he was like paying, uh, you know, when he was uh, paying for prostitutes, uh, one of the things that Spitzer was nailed on was the Man Act, which is just, you know, sort of an a silly 1800s era like like it's not always silly when, you know, when the Man Act is used for uh, for actual sort of kidnapping and forced uh Sex slavery, that's a good use of the Mann Act. The kind of more bogus uses of the Mann Act are when it's otherwise consenting, uh, you know, prostitute client (laughs) relationship blown into a federal charge. Right. Uh, Right. So he was nailed on the Mann Act. But the other thing he was hit with was enterprise corruption because because he – because he was funneling the payments to the prostitutes through one of his real estate companies, right? right? Like people, people think about uh, Trump as being a real estate baron, but Spitzer's dad was also a huge commercial real estate guy in New York, and Spitzer was in the family business, and he had like these other companies that were part of his real estate portfolio. And he got hit with an enterprise corruption charge because he was, I mean, he was paying back the corporation, but he was using the the corporation to conceal the payments to the prostitute. So it's the kind of thing that you get busted for when someone puts you in their crosshairs. And right now, uh, 
Cohen is in the crosshairs. Yeah. And if he was bullshit, like setting up an LLC right. to, to cover up other payments is exactly what those enterprise corruption kind of statutes yeah. are for. And, and I also, I, you know, this has clearly been in the works for a little while. If it went from Mueller to Rosenstein to the uh, Southern District of New York. Um, yeah. But, a Trump appointee. Right. Um, which I think is worth coming back to. But uh, the setting that aside, it still has to be sort of complicating um, for Cohen here, which, which is hard to make the attorney-client privilege case when Trump is out here publicly saying he had nothing to do with the transaction, that they had no yep. attorney-client relationship yeah. with the transaction because he didn't even know about it, right? That's I mean, that look, that's going to be part of it too. I mean, apparently he communicated with uh, Davidson's attorneys. Right. Uh, not Davidson, uh, who is Daniel's attorney. Right. Uh, using his Trump organization work account. Right. And so maybe the argument will be that the lawyer client relationship is him and Trump org. Right. Right. Like there are, there are all sorts of ways <laughs> that they can sort of scramble right. to try to cover this. But literally every time he opens his mouth, he fucks himself a new They're way. Constantly shooting themselves in the dick. It's great. He can't stop talking. <laughs> right? He literally can't stop talking. And so like it's just cracking me up that like a Saturday Night Massacre is going to be built on right. Trump having a 12-year-old liaison right. with a rando, right. right? That's it. He right. met someone at a golf event. He's like, well, there's someone I'd like to sex. <laughs> and that's it. 12 years later, he still just can't get away from it. And the fact is like you lie about enough things and you put yourself in the middle of enough important things. Right. And all of a sudden your personal bullshit lies <laughs> end up taking on national importance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and so there he is. So that's it. He's, he's, he's now got Michael, Michael Cohen, <clears throat> Michael Cohen is the latest person who is probably like uh, Michael Cohen may be saved by knowing where bodies are buried. Right. Like uh, if anybody's going to get a pardon, it's him. Trump's like a yeah, long time. Right. Yeah. Man. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, though, I mean, I would love for one of the banks that the money went through to be state chartered. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it would be amazing. Would you know, cause be then, amazing. cause then he couldn't get pardoned for state crimes, but the, but the but it's just like the latest person who is likely to find out that Trump has no loyalty to anyone else. Oh, right. Well, I mean, if he flips, Trump is fucked, right? And yeah. if Trump hangs but I mean, out to dry, like to me, that's the funniest part of Trump saying that he knew nothing about the deal. Because if Cohen is totally on his own right. and there is no attorney-client relationship, then it kind of frees Cohen up to talk if he doesn't want to spend any time yes. uh, in, in prison or being investigated. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. beautiful. Like, people just can't they, – they just can't get out of their own way. Yeah. And it is, it is glorious. 
it, it really is. It's it's a beautiful story. I I am loving uh, covering it unfolding as <laughs> as the year goes. Um, I guess the the one last point I want to make on this, which is a minor yeah. one, is just as you mentioned. Um, so this had to go to the Southern District of New York, where the U.S. Attorney there, presumably given how pro- high profile it is, had to approve it. And he's not a real U.S. Attorney; he's the interim pick, and he's Trump's hand-chosen guy. Jeff oh, he Irwin. hasn't even he hasn't even been confirmed. No, and so his interim appointment is up on May third. At which point, <laughs> <laughs> at which point, I believe the Southern District of New York, the courts actually choose a U.S. Attorney because uh, Congress has failed. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, this is oh, that's wow. what's reading, and you know Ames had alluded to this before, and I didn't realize that this was the case. But yeah, I, I guess once his term, his interim term is up, the courts basically have to step in and make sure that there's somebody there. No, but now why? Why hasn't what's holding him up? Uh, like why hasn't Congress had hearings on him? You would think, like think if he's a Gillibrand qualified has guy, blue slipped him because Who? Gillibrand. Oh, okay. Because he's Trump's, you know personal friend and choice and, and all that. Oh, okay. But, you know, props to this guy with three weeks left in his interim term, kind of yeah. sticking his thumb in the eye of his benefactor there. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I think- mean, that's pretty, that's pretty great. But I like, and it's funny cause I, in general, I hate the blue slip process. Right. I find it sort of profoundly uh, grotesque and anti-democratic I in agree. its current incarnation. Like this will just be <laughs> this. This is probably a bit much for our sort of thrown together thing. But for people who don't know, the blue slip process is like a Senate uh, custom, which I'm surprised McConnell is even honoring here. But the Senate custom was that any senator, in its broadest application, any senator could refuse to return what like literally a blue slip of paper uh which would then hold up a nomination right right? like the idea was everyone gets this slip of paper and if you're ready to vote on it you give it back and if you don't if you don't give back the blue slip the nomination doesn't go forward and so they can't have a hearing and the old way it was used was kind of to hold leverage over nominations within your state. Right. Right. And so the it was a way of senators saying, this is my backyard. Right. And you can't just do that. And then it became much broader. And like, I don't want to go tit for tat on who started it, but it, right. like certainly from my view, it seemed like the Republicans were much worse about it, right. using it in sort of purely obstructionist ways to block vast swaths of nominees all over the country. Right. Um, Though it also seemed like they weren't honoring the blue slip process from Democratic senators. Right. At least on judicial nominations, they have not. Yeah. And so, and so it is, it is interesting that this was one of the ones that they (laughs) did honor the process on. Yeah. uh, Probably because uh, McConnell just hates New York generally. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, they might as well not have anyone working. (laughs) Yeah. Why? Why why even bother? with this um so yeah so that's i mean that's interesting that's very funny that in three weeks he gets to go back to private practice right. and he never has to take trump's calls again right he just sets the house on fire and walks away it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> the joker walking away from an exploding hospital exactly exactly 
uh, thank you to my panel here on episode 12, uh, Mark, Adam, Rhiannon, and Ames. Uh, my name is Charles Starr. Uh, good night, and thanks for listening to episode 12 of my See ya. Night, folks. Bye. Good night, and good luck.